Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, world. This is the New Books and Science Fiction Podcast. We're part of the amazing New Books Network, which offers interviews of authors tackling every conceivable subject from politics to climate change to cooking to family psychology to history to photography to war and, of course, to science fiction, which can take a deep dive into any of those subjects and many more. It just usually does it in the future or maybe the past through time travel or on other planets. In other words, you never know what to expect with science fiction, which is why so many of us love to read and write it. By the way, I'm Rob Wolf, author of The Alternate Universe and its sequel, The Escape. Today, we're talking about The Mercy Journals. Uh, It is the third novel by Claudia Casper, and it's her first work of science fiction. Set in 2047, it tells the story of Alan Quincy through his journals. Quincy, who has the nickname Mercy, hence the name of the book, is a former soldier beset by demons from some horrible things he did during the Third World War, but he's managing to live an orderly, albeit some might say a small life, until it is interrupted first by the appearance of a beautiful, rather mysterious woman named Ruby, and later by his grudge-bearing brother, Leo. The story touches on pressing issues of today, things like genocide, climate change, immigration, post-traumatic stress disorder, but it's largely a book about one man's attempt to find meaning after suffering some powerful traumas, He's abandoned his family, and he's committed what today we would consider war crimes. And I don't want to leave out the very important fact that the Mercy Journals also won the coveted Philip K. Dick Award, which means it's destined to be a classic read for years to come. And on that note, uh, Claudia Casper, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Hello. Hello, hello. So uh, it's an auspicious day today, I guess. It's the first total eclipse in the U.S. since uh, 1979 and the first in nearly 100 years to cross the whole country. But I'm not sure about Canada, actually, which is where you are. I I know you guys had a partial eclipse in 2008, but I couldn't figure out when your last total one was. Um, I don't know. Although, I mean, I suppose in the winter in our foreign, far north, it almost is like total eclipse. No, we got a, apparently about 70%, sort of like our dollar to the American dollar. Ah, interesting. Yes. Well, that's what we got in New York today, too, about 70%. But anyway, we're not here to talk about eclipses. Let's talk about your book. It's your first book that falls into the science fiction genre, although... I gather from descriptions of your two previous novels that you've you've long been interested in some of the, well, basically some of the horrible things people do to each other, like Argentina's Dirty War, which was the subject of your last book, which has a, a really gorgeous title, I think, The Continuation of Love by Other Means. 
So why did you decide to set this book in the future and thus make it a work of science fiction? There's probably several ways to take a run at that question because um, the way a book evolves is it's, um, you know, not sort of point by point. One of the things I knew I wanted to write about was genocide. And I wanted to write about a genocide that had been committed by our side, by the West, by who we see as the good guys, because I felt very strongly, um, I guess all my life, but definitely post 9-11, that the way language is used during conflicts is very, very disturbing to me. And it says it, it immediately we try and separate out so that, oops, there's a, my phone, so that we try and separate out um, as if we were not one species all capable of that behavior, as if only one culture or one nation or one ethnicity could um, commit genocide. So in order to do that, I didn't want to write about a genocide that had happened. And I suppose this is the uh, the one of the many brilliant things about the science fiction um, genre is that um, it, it opens you up to any possibility you want. So I had to have a genocide that had not occurred. So that took me to the future. Also, this is going to be a long answer, but um, I th intellectually, the thing that has always interested me and the lens which I hold up often to things is, is thinking about evolution and thinking about who we are as a species and how we connect to the, the other animals around us and, and the environment we find ourselves in. And that also leads me to think about our future because with the topic of evolution comes extinction. So, um, I've always been kind of thinking about where we're going as a species. So it was very interesting to be able to journey forward um, out of the present. And what conclusions were you able to draw about the hope for man, given our, our capacity to commit genocide? Uh, certainly, mercy goes through a journey of having... Um, participated in something fairly heinous, which is revealed, you know, in the course of his, in the course of the journals. But he's trying to find redemption as well. And what's your sense of of humanity's potential to find find redemption after so many crimes that we've committed throughout history? Yeah, one of the, um, the struggles and what, or well, challenges, and one of the reasons I think this book took long time to to really finish was that I, 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 I think I've created a, the character of a good man who commits two of uh, humanity's worst crimes and is still a good man. Um, I think uh, that to, if we have any hope of, it, it's, we, we really have to accept that it's going to be harm reduction. We'll never get rid of that behavior in our species in certain circumstances um it, it erupts and that will always be the case so if we, i th i think if we accept that it's in our nature it's something that comes out 
under certain circumstances, then we can manage it. While I was writing this book, I was on a plane with, uh, I ended up sitting beside somebody who was working as a um, security, on, on security detail for the international court. And he said to me um, that their sort of mantra is we're, we're three meals away from chaos, meaning that if people, if a, if, if a society misses three meals because of a disaster or a war or a conflict, by the fourth meal, things are starting to unravel if, if they don't know that food is coming in the future. So I think that's something we always, especially in the West, where we have a relatively stable access to food and shelter, not all of us, but many of us, um, we have to remember that part of our nature is, is put to the test in those circumstances. In terms of the future, I think, and I... I suspect many people are thinking this, um, Trump is a little, in a, some sense, a distraction, and in another way, a continuance of this thought. I, th I feel like our species is at a kind of watershed in history. We've grown to quite a large population. We are using a lot of the Earth's resources. We're living longer. Our infant mortality is down. So there's there's just a common sense tells you there's a limit to how big we can get. And I, I feel like everyone's beginning to feel that we're getting close to those limits. The question of traveling to other planets and colonizing other planets is one I didn't want to address. I think uh, we're a long way from it. The distances are huge and our lifespans are only as long as they they are. I mean, maybe things will change in the future, but I don't feel like we're there yet. So one of the thing, one of the things that this book has in, in again, more as a setting because you can't write a novel about climate change. It would be the most boring novel in the world. But climate change is the background of this book. And the thing about climate change is, I think, to deal with it, we have to deal with it as a species. So as a as, as nations cooperating and coordinating and that is a huge challenge for the future so it's it's fascinating to watch the politics going on now and the the tensions between autonomy and freedom and cooperating and working collectively to a common good so those those two things are always in tension and they certainly are now in your country absolutely you you said something interesting. You you said, and it was sort of a hopeful statement, I think, that we are coming to recognize the limits of our resources and how much space, these weren't your words exactly, but how much space we can take up, how much we, we have and, and the damage we're doing. And yet in your story, there are, I mean, Mercy is obviously the main character, but there are a couple people around him who he interacts with. And a key person is his brother, Leo. And there's sort of a Cain and Abel quality to their rivalry. Leo, to me, really represents someone more in the, shall we say, Trump category, someone who would gladly tear up a climate accord agreement or drive the SUV, you know, with the air conditioning blasting and gas guzzling, etc. So he sort of represents a kind of person who doesn't seem to acknowledge that ultimately resources are are limited. And I wonder what 
message you might be telegraphing in in making these two people brothers and the struggle that takes place between them? The character of Leo, as is often the case, it's the most fun to write so-called bad characters. And I, I very much enjoyed writing his character. And I think certainly we see some of the pain that drives him underneath. And as someone myself who suffers from depression, you know, not not clinical depression, but periods of depression and sort of a, a deep pervasive sense of what's the point of anything, I um, I could identify with Leo's nihilism and I, I felt it had a place at the table and nothing is more boring than, you know, sanctimony. So uh, he he's a good challenge on on his brother, who is is despite where he's found himself in history, is a profoundly decent human being. Um, so just rephrase the question about Leo. Oh, I just wonder. I mean, you you sort of there seems to be kind of an epic struggle between the two brothers, and I wonder what they represented for you. Right. Okay. So um, in the early days of writing this book. Because genocide was one of the driving themes, I really I looked very closely at the Cain and Abel story, which is a story that has always fascinated me. Um, and because it was the first murder in our kind of mythology and our in our sort of um, the groundwork of our cultural uh, past for at least many of the streams of Western culture. And in that story, the language is is remarkable. And I was always bothered by how God acts in that story. If you think of God as one of the characters, and he would be the, the parental figure. Um, so anyone who's been a parent knows that when you have jealousy with your children, how you deal with it. And God seems to deal with it in a, in a, a very offhand, almost cruel and somewhat demanding way to, to Cain. And then when Cain commits the first murder, the punishment is relatively light, which it subtextually would say that in that story, we are understanding that God almost accepts murder as part of the human story. Um, he doesn't, he, for the weight of it, he doesn't seem to respond very um, profoundly. The language, on the other hand, in that story does profound. It's like the earth has lips that drink up the blood. And um, anyway, so I, uh, Leo, and then and then some of the thinking about it is that Abel was represented the shepherd or the nomadic life, and Cain represented farming, which would be um, storage, having extra, having surplus. So almost ownership. So it's again, it's a story that's about a pivotal time in human history and even in human evolution. So really, I wanted to flip it so the Abel and Cain story would be reversed. And there, there was a um, time when this book was called The Last Murder. So that, that was one of the things I was going, going for with it. And I guess, I mean, Abel, although I'd have to do my Bible as literature class again uh, from college to to really fully grapple with the issues there. But I do seem to remember thinking Abel was the nice guy. And yeah. what a shame that, you know, he bites the dust so soon. And it's the, the, the murderer who, who goes forth, you know, and 
and is the father of humanity ultimately in some respects, you know. Yes, that's true. Yeah. So um, Mercy's redemption comes in, uh, the way I see it, in two significant ways. One is through the act of writing itself. I mean, the whole book is essentially his journal. It's his story and the way he tells it. And you do have a few reflections in there about the power of writing and, you know, his need to write. And, of course, there's another process he goes through, which is, basically learning to trust and care for people again, you know, after all these years where the only thing I think he's cared about are his his goldfish, which, if I understood correctly, he keeps a great personal risk because it's illegal to, to have pets, waste resources on pets in 2047. I wonder how you view the writing process as healing, both for Mercy, and I wonder if you find it healing in some ways for yourself as a writer yeah i uh, i don't understand how anyone is able to think about anything without writing it, it is how i understand the world so um even if i'm having a thorny issue or a conflict with a friend uh that i'm not easily able to resolve i'll start writing um writing about it to understand what i'm thinking and uh, now we're getting such interesting new studies um, of the brain and how thoughts happen and how speech happens. And it's, it's still incredibly mysterious how you don't know what you're going to say until you say it. And yet you have a thought like this, either the speed of the processing system, it's is is remarkable but these i don't think this has been completely deconstructed so writing allows you to think in a very different way i was quite excited uh i read plato's phaedrus because i came across that quote that writing destroys memory which just was electric when i read it and of course what plato's talking about is uh, the time when the technology of being able to write something down was being introduced into society, which meant that people no longer met, needed to memorize everything. So for him, their brains were being uh, degraded by losing their ability to memorize. So that, that was a very nice parallel with where we are with the Internet, where, again, a new technology has been introduced, which is changing the way our brains work and we have you know there are losses that come with it we're still in the discovery process I think but anyway that that sentence writing destroys memory my character Alan needs to destroy memories that are are annihilating him annihilating him they're um so the reason he can't connect to anybody or care about anybody is the minute he opens himself up emotionally, these memories intrude also, and they start taking him apart. So that's why he's shrunk his world down to just these goldfish that he takes care of. And it's not so much that he's risking a lot having the goldfish, but he is a very, um, as a soldier, he's somebody who buys into the social rules, This this sort of social life so he's going against his own principles by having these but he needs to do that to survive 
when you said writing destroys memory, you know, I, and I, I read it in the book, but I didn't make the connection to the internet and our modern technology, but it is so true. I feel like, although I'm also getting older, so maybe my memory is just going, but you know, we used to know people's phone numbers, right? But you don't need to know them anymore. The only phone numbers I know are ones from my, you know, childhood friends, you know, that's, those are the numbers I remember the ones they had 30 years ago, of course, not the numbers they have now. No, and the human brain is so plastic that it's it's already changing and adapting to this new thing. And, you know, one of the things that strikes me the most is GPS, because I'm someone who loves reading maps, and I'm, I'm quite good at it. And GPS frustrates me, because you never get a context of where you are. It's always in so close. So it's it's almost like you're in a tunnel following a maze. You're not out in the world. And over time, I, you know my children, that's all they know. So it, that has to change how they see the world, how they feel themselves on this earth. So um, yeah, I'm interest, interested in that a lot. One of the reasons I wanted the book to be written as a journal is I wanted Alan Quincy's voice to be like right, like whispering in your ear, this voice from the future telling you his story. Your grandfather was a general in the German army in World War II, and at some point later, your your father, who was born in Germany, ended up in Argentina. You know, which seems like a, a bit of a scary trajectory. <laughs> and true, uh, true. <laughs> well, and I wondered how your relationship with your father informed your your interest in the things you're clearly interested in. These very challenging, I mean, genocide and war. I mean, clearly, you have a you have a visceral connection on some level with these things. Um, there's there's no question that uh, they would be a deep driving force for my thinking about it and my being interested in it. My father told me when I was like twelve or thirteen that his his mother had told him at the end of the war that she was Jewish. So I grew up with a story of my grandfather being a general in the German army, not in the SS, but nonetheless very high up, and the sense that my grandmother had been Jewish. So I learned German and went to Germany when I was 17 to find out um, the truth of that story. And she was someone who did not like young people very much, and she was an odd woman. She sort of spun stories and... Um, lived a partially a fantasy life, I think. At any rate, when I uh, asked her about it, she said no, her father had just been a haberdasher and he'd had a beard and everyone had thought he was Jewish, but he wasn't. And her, her maiden name was Koenig, which at that time I thought, well, that doesn't sound very Jewish to me. So I let it drop. But of course, Koenig is king and could easily be a Jewish name. I didn't go to like find out the records because in the end, I don't think I needed to. It was a, it, it was enough of a, a story. So uh, my father certainly has been, he was 14 when the war ended. It's a huge part of his life. And I've just written a nonfiction piece, which he told me a story of confronting his father about what he knew and didn't know had happened and that that confrontation made a rift between them that was never healed and still causes him pain. So 
Um, yeah, so it's been in the in the the fa storytelling fabric of my my life, and wanting to understand what it is, how these things happen, what what it is in us that takes us to these places, and not wanting to be on a, I mean, obviously morally on a side, but in terms of trying to come to grips with it, trying to look at it as much as possible. So also um, when my father was in Argentina, we were, I was left leaning and he was a, a, a um, executive, a foreign executive. So he had bodyguards and so forth. And we had many, many arguments and he can still get a little heated <laughs> when we bring up that, that period of time, even though he has moved quite a bit to the left but um yeah so it's it's been in my in at my dinner table wow well i could see yeah you can't you can't ignore things like that at the dinner table i guess you know oh you can't i mean i didn't grow up with my father they my father and my mother split when i was six but i visited him once a year after that in argentina uh well no he's somebody he is he became he renounced his german citizenship because of its history, and he became a citizen of the world. So he lived in Iran, in Portugal, France, Holland, Argentina, Australia, Brazil. So I visited him in all those different places. Wow, great, great opportunity to see the world. Yeah, well, of course, I was a young girl. I was just thinking, are there going to be any cute boys there? <laughs> I, sh I should point out that my father... Um, is, is very anti-war, so yeah. In the United States, there has been talk, as you know, of building a border wall between the U.S. and Mexico. And in the Mercy Journals, Alan Quincy's greatest trauma comes from killing he did in the name of protecting a border. And I wondered if Donald Trump had already appeared on the scene and was he already talking about his great dream of building this crazy wall? Or did you come up with that on your own? And I wonder what message, well, maybe not message, I don't want to say that, but, you know, what, uh, what Mercy's experience can tell us about wall building between nations and so no Donald Trump had not come on the scene at all when I wrote that so that has felt somewhat prescient the exit the existence of the wall came from thinking about a climate change if climate change turns up the heat on human conflict and on access to food and water what that would do to borders. And and we're seeing it in in, in the whole world. Um, not all the conflicts are driven by climate change, but climate change is a factor in many of the co conflicts and things that are driving refugees, for example, in Syria and in parts of sub-Saharan Africa. So when people are starving, they're desperate. They're going to get over a border, try and get, uh, get to food to, to survive. And people in a country will allow some of that, but then there's a point at which they'll feel overwhelmed. They'll feel they're going to lose themselves um, 
everything. And uh, so that's a, 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 a creates tension. And over, if you look at history, whenever things like that have happened, borders are the, are the areas where that friction gets played out. I don't think I have a, a terribly useful um, thing to say about the future with um, the number of refugees that are, for example, reaching Europe. I'm watching it with tremendous interest and um, a feeling of compassion and a feeling of awe in a way. And like countries like Turkey have taken so many people in. In Uganda, they've taken so many Sudanese people in. I mean, what we're dealing with here is tiny compared to what's going on in the rest of the world. But anyway, so that's where the wall came from. And then, then when Trump came along, I was thinking, well, this could sell some books. <laughs> Yeah, very timely and depressing. And in the end, I mean, I think history's shown us, right, that the walls don't matter. People will go where they need to go sure. to survive, you know, if the human race is going to survive. And I suppose the meaning of Trump's wall is, well, it's very hard to understand what he really thinks he's going to do with that wall. But um, it's, you know, I think his justification would be... Um, economic pr protection protecting the jobs of americans it's it doesn't seem to be about um starvation or or drought or anything like that at this point so it would have a, a different meaning well they don't work and really if this species of ours which is such a mixed bag it's so wonderful and capable of such profound love and beauty and joy and laughter and music and such terrible behavior if we were going to survive we really were going to have to start thinking as as a global entity i think and 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 that's a big ask you wrote a great essay about what you called on your blog the weirdness of literary prizes about your experience in april at norwestcon where you won the philip k dick award and i thought it was just great the way you describe writers as quote a horizontal tribe, people who work beside each other, people who avoid hierarchies. And then you describe how after spending years essentially alone in the process of writing a book, you find yourself competing with other writers for an <laughs> award. And in this case, it wasn't just any award, but one where people are dressed as their favorite characters from their favorite stories. So <laughs> I yeah. Yeah, exactly. Well, I just wondered what that was like for you. I mean, you conveyed some of that and I'll put a link to your to your essay in the notes, the podcast notes, but share a little bit about what the experience was like. Sure. You know, I think for most writers that that whole interface with, you know, success and hierarchy and where you fit in the pecking order is a kind of torture. And it's what can make being in a literary community very challenging for a lot of us. When we're discussing things outside of the hierarchy, it's, it's, you, you get the best conversations ever. But it's surprising how easily it slips in at like who's agent and how much you got on your contract and, and what are the book sales and all of this. And awards are like, award ceremonies are like the peak of that awfulness. So, you know, I think they're we and and I don't know if it's true in the states but in Canada they're proliferating there's awards you know more and more awards because publishers are finding it challenging to sell books and it's one way of getting the word out about a book so in some ways with the cynical side of me 
this would not be the case for the Philip K. Dick Award, but for some of the awards, it is it's merely a, an extension of publicity. Mind you, it's very hard to get the word out, so why not? Um, but as a personal experience, yes, it's it's awful sitting at the those tables and you know you like everyone and only one of you gets picked and it's 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 sort of like being in the worst of like the kindergarten playground. <laughs> But that being said, the Philip K. Dick Awards, I could not have picked a, a, a more wonderful uh, award ceremony to be part of because with all the, the costumes and discussions about travel to Mars and there was such a, a huge big tent and such a welcoming um, and accepting environment and very creative. There were many people who um, come to that event every year and it's 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 become almost a tribal um, celebration for them so you could feel that in the room so it, it was um, in the end a very very good experience well it was really fun reading about it so so thanks for thanks for writing that and thank you so much for the mercy journals and for coming on new books in science fiction thank you I enjoyed it I have been speaking with Claudia Casper, who is the author of The Mercy Journals, which won this year's Philip K. Dick Award. And I encourage anyone listening to go out and get your very own copy. And you can listen to more interviews of science fiction authors uh, by subscribing to the podcast. I am Rob Wolf, the host of New Books in Science Fiction, and I thank you very much for listening. Until next time.